check take two. Let's hear what you got this time, Chris. Testing, testing. Uh, this is Garrett speaking. This is Cody. This is Becca. All right, let's see if you guys did any better. Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have another podcast lined up today and a new group of students. Let's do some introductions. We'll start off with you, Chris. Uh, so I'm, my name is Chris and I'm from Cedar City and I'm a third year medical student. I hear that's a great place to be from. It is. That's what my dad tells me all the time. I grew up there, as you know. Go ahead, Cody. Uh, my name is Cody Rasmussen, and I'm also a third-year med student, and I grew up in Lehigh, Utah. Yeah, great. Good to have you here. And Rebecca? Uh, my name is Rebecca Lee. I'm from Washington originally, and then grew up in Taiwan for a little bit. Also a third-year medical student. And Garrett, I'm not sure if we've uh, had you do a full introduction before. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm Garrett. I'm a fourth-year medical student out on a return visit here. I'm actually also from Utah, from Highland, for those that know the area at all. Uh, it's great to be back, and I this is actually my first podcast. So uh, tell us what you're going into. Um, I'm planning on going into family practice. I've actually already started the process of uh, applications and interviews for family practice. And yet somehow you're here. I know, right? It's almost like family practice gets to see a lot of psych and will be the entry point to psych, which will kind of lead us to the topic of our discussion today. Yeah, I actually really, really like this topic and I'm looking forward to doing that. So let's, um, just so the other three students know, when you guys present your podcast, and and we'll talk about you picking the topic later this week, um, we'll also have you tell us a little bit more about who you are, where you plan on going, and those kinds of things. So... Get ready. All right, so I want to start off with a few things that are high yield. Probably more than anything, family practice physicians will take care of depression and anxiety. And the question I have first that that I want to be able to tackle is when you're preparing for your shelf exam, what do you need to know about how to distinguish between depression and anxiety? So I'll start off, first of all, just defining depression, and that's SIG ECAPS, right? The prescription is energy capsules, sleep, interest, guilt, changes in energy, lower with energy. The other three can kind of go either direction. Concentration, appetite also can go either direction. Psychomotor slowing, you'll see patients, they just seem to slow down. My experience has been when I see psychomotor slowing that it takes somebody forever to lift their hand up and run it through their hair. And suicidality. So those are the symptoms that we see with psycho with uh, depression, that SIGI caps, and you'll hear that in a lot of other podcasts. We think repetition is not all bad. Uh, which of you tackled the task of what's important to know in distinguishing between depression and anxiety for the shelf exam? Did anybody pick that topic up? I looked into it a little bit, and I think the main difference is for generalized anxiety disorder, you're worried about things that are to come. And then for depression, you're worried about things that have happened in the past. And that's a distinction that you're seeing on the shelf exam principles that are tested. I didn't really look into things and questions specifically. I couldn't find a way to search for it. All right. So we'll hold off on uh, finding that as gospel yet because I think there's a way to search through the questions about generalized anxiety disorder and kind of start uh, looking at the principles that, that show up. So we'll, we'll come back to that on another podcast, potentially. How does that sound, Rebecca? Sounds good. All right. And then, Cody, what was it you were tackling? I had just what you said, the Siggy caps. So. 
Oh, so I, I, I got <laughs> ahead stole, of it, huh? Stole the thunder. All right, what else did you learn about depression? Um, High yield, things that seem to be tested as you get ready to take your exam. So a big part of it is that with those different things, those symptoms that you see with SIGI caps, the main ones that you want to really see for it to be truly depression is the depressed mood or anhedonia. So basically those two things. The anhedonia is the interest lost. So you'll have one of those two or the main symptoms that you'll see. Loss of interest in activities, loss of pleasure in activities, good. And then the other thing that I ask, uh, let's say, Chris, I think you're tackling this. One of the things that we refer to quite often, and we're actually going to refer to that in just a few minutes, is something called the SCID. And uh, it's a diagnostic interview that's referred to quite often in uh, studies that look at population-based numbers. Can you tell us a little bit about the SCID? Um, so first, SCID stands for Structural Clinical Interview. Um, sorry, for the DSM disorders, that's the, the D on it. Um, and it's a like a semi-structured um, interview or like guide to interviewing um, that can help clinicians um, diagnose the like major DSM-5 diagnoses or disorders. I like it. I think you can actually break out different parts of that, right, and do like a depressive module or a schizophrenia module or something along those lines. But I'm not entirely sure. Did you come across anything that told you about that? I didn't. Okay. All right, so the question that we came up with, or that not we, but you came up with, was what? Uh, as a future family practice physician, one of the questions that I had for Dr. Roundy that we thought would be a great topic is when do I refer to a psychiatrist? Knowing that as a family practice, I'm probably going to see a lot of people with depression, anxiety, but what at what point does my training kind of stop and I need to include someone with a little more expertise in the field? All right. So um, you found randomized control trials looking at uh, outcomes for referral at specific points, right? No, <laughs> unfortunately. So you found really strong opinions about when it was right or not right. Yes, some <laughs> real strong opinions and some surveys of practicing physicians of what they, they themselves consider referral. So talk to me, tell us about what you read regarding surveys. Now, I, I think there were some articles you shared with me that I, I kind of rolled my eyes at. Um, uh, I'm going to point out one from the primary care notebook, which mm -hmm. um, said, hey, you refer for anybody that's psychotic, anybody that is a risk for suicide, and anybody that has bipolar effective, spelled E-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, -E, right? Yeah, and, that and probably that, wasn't the best article. <laughs> at that point, I kind of went, <laughs> scratched my head. And, and yet, that's some of the better information you ran across, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was, unfortunately, they're really, even from, like, AFP, or they just aren't guidelines set best Not practice for this kind of thing. So, so I want to point that out because it sets the stage for this. I did like the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry's mm -hmm. position paper, but that's sort of a, an expert opinion. And I think you have some data about 
what actually happens when the rubber meets the road, right? That was uh, some opinions about what family practice, um, not necessarily opinions, but survey data from family mm -hmm. practice. Tell us about the survey data. So in the survey data, it was showing of like, they had a few different categories and some of them were what types of things make you consider referral. Like very high on that would be like suicidality. Another one right underneath that was actually patient's willingness to go see a psychiatrist and their ability to afford one, mm -hmm. which surprised me that that was such a big part in making a medical decision-making was unfortunately kind of out of the physician's hands a bit. Yeah. Uh, next to that would be compli complicated situations. So mm -hmm. like... Have they failed multiple medications in their depression medication? Do they have a wide variety of medications that you know these psych medications tend to have some interactions with each other and other medications? Are you comfortable handling that complex of a medication list? Um, similar, just like I could name a bunch of it. Along those lines, it was it had to do with complexity of the patient and how comfortable each of these physicians were with their own knowledge before they felt like they needed to include the psychiatrist. I think that makes a lot of sense. The American uh, Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, they summarized a number of these factors. They talked about the presentation, which I think you spoke to quite a bit, but they also spoke to that presentation being things like how dangerous is somebody? How quickly has there been a change? Um, another thing that they pointed out that I thought was interesting, if you have a medical condition and mental illness is getting in the way of treating that. And again, this is primarily for children, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, generally speaking, these principles would apply across the board. There were also some specific um, instances they pointed out with child behavior tantrums that seem to be persisting or uh, an absolute disruption in function. And I think that's a pretty common thing that we talk mm -hmm. about as well. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that they also pointed out that, hey, if, if it's somebody isn't getting well, it might be time to refer, right? Yeah. And I think they actually put a timeline on it of uh, somewhere around six to eight weeks. If you're not seeing some sort of benefit, then mm -hmm. it might be time to refer somebody. Uh, the family support system was fairly important. And I hadn't thought about this at all. So if you have a patient that, uh, particularly a child in this case, who, whose sole uh, parent is having problems with intoxication on a continual basis, alcohol, amphetamines, or something along those lines, and is uh, losing functional abilities, uh, not necessarily losing functional abilities, but having some sort of mental health problem in that context, that, that's a referral as well because of the socioeconomic complexity of the situation. Um, but they also talked about things like, hey, how available is uh, how how available is psychiatric care in your area, and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. What what does the insurance do? Um, what else did you find about out about reasons or comments why there are referrals? Was there anything else that kind of floated up to the top for you? Um, I think you touched on it. Another one was like pediatric patients in general seemed very quick to want to refer because of the effect it can have on their development in general. Uh, it, I guess a lot of these primary care physicians are not as comfortable treating children who have 
tend to be kind of complex even if it's just depression because they respond so differently it can be hard to really be able to tell how bad it is when you're so used yeah. to just working with adults yeah. um, the other thing I think that came out with children is that uh, if if there's a family that has a complex psychiatric history as well and you really don't know if this is going to be something like bipolar disorder or if mm-hmm. it's simply to simply childhood depression I don't know that that's simple then that might be other factors that, that kick in I think one other thing that made family practice physicians very nervous in terms of prescribing was a boxed warning. Are you guys familiar with the boxed warning? I'm asking my third year students first. With the boxed warning that accompanies all antidepressants? No. Uh, So there's an elevated risk of suicidality that's been associated with antidepressants and the expectation is that primary care physicians follow up or, or that anybody that's prescribing an antidepressant is following up quite consistently with patients um, who have been prescribed antidepressant medications and with uh, pediatric patients, that risk seems to be somewhat higher. That risk seems to escalate the younger somebody is. So, so that black box warning, what's formerly been called black box warning but now is simply called boxed warnings, you'll find those in the package inserts on medications. So a package insert or prescribing information called the PI, you can find that for any medication that uh, physicians prescribe and you'll be able to read the uh, boxed warnings that are associated with those medications and all antidepressants carry that boxed warning now. Um, Types of of, um, consultations, types of referrals seem to be as varied as the reasons for referrals and the complexity of that. So I, I saw a range from, hey Joe, I got this patient that's pretty difficult, have any ideas, right, curbside consult, which I think they probably didn't say because it's hard to bill for a curbside consult and it's mm-hmm. there's some liability issues. But essentially from that range all the way to it's now your patient forever and I will never see the patient again and all things in between. Mm-hmm. Did you see other kinds of consultations beyond that? So, hey, we're going to share the patient. Hey, I'll take over the care of the patient because I know you don't have room in your clinic, but maybe you can take a look at this patient, send mm-hmm. me back with some recommendations, and periodically I may refer back for you for periodic uh, assessments. Or see them once, tell me what to do, and if it doesn't work, then I'll be back. I think you kind of, as you mentioned, you described the whole spectrum. I think there is definitely a encouragement in what I read to approach the shared patient model where it's not totally just throwing them off and it's not just curbside consultation as you mentioned and unfortunately there's just such a barrier in some communities to even go see a psychiatrist that that ideal is just not met as often as primary care or others would like so when you proposed this question to me about hey when do you refer i think my answer was gosh i think it just depends on the person (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a <laughs> and it's, and I'm not sure you're going to find a lot. It's very customized. It's very very customized. Not a great answer to this question, unfortunately. But I have a question for you that came up as I was thinking about this. Why is it so important to refer to a primary care or to a for a primary care physician to refer to a psychiatrist or any specialist? It's because you want to be able to get that patient the best care possible. Get them what they need, not what is best for you as the physician. 
uh, because I want to be able to know at what point is my training not going to cut it because I know there's other people who have done more in-depth training in whatever field I'm considering referring to that's going to be beneficial for the patient. And on the other side, I don't want to be referring too early because of the cost and burden that could place on a patient. So understanding that best cost to benefit timing of referral is kind of the tricky part of it. So I think you're making some assumptions. What assumptions am I making? <laughs> Are you sure that when you're referring for a chronic condition that a patient actually gets better care? Oh, I guess, yeah, that's, I'm hoping the people I'm referring to in a specialty are better at what they do than myself. I do too, but <laughs> guess what? Oh, I'm that. not sure the data bears this out. So um, the question that came to my mind was, all right, so Garrett, you've asked me, hey, when do I refer? And I think the implicit question in that is, how do I make sure that my patient gets the best care? right the best care possible when i've reached the my limits then then who how do i know that i've reached my limits how do i know that i sent somebody along it turns out that there is a lot of data that uh, the quality of care given by specialists seems to be higher than the quality of care that is given by primary care physicians and i believe what that means is that outcome-based measures like did you see the patient enough times during a certain block to know that you're following up on the antidepressant? Did you get the patient on a high enough dose that, or an effective enough dose so that that patient can have remission or at least some, some partial recovery of their antidepressant, right? There's some measures that you can look at to see if primary care uh, physicians are actually doing those standard of care things. So we, that standard of care or quality of care. It turns out that the specialists do those things at a higher rate than the primary care physicians. But guess what implication or outcome that has for the patients? It's more expensive. More expensive, yep. Are they healthier, better quality of life, more functional? Not necessarily. It just means they're being seen more often and, and maybe the, the standard of care is met a little more but yeah it looks like um, there's a study that I'm, I'm going to be following up with called the medical outcome study and it looks like this is data that's been out there for a while and there was a great article by Kurt Strange uh, MD PhD and a, and a couple of other authors and what he he called it the paradox of primary care which is primary care physicians don't tend to give the same quality of care and yet the outcomes are almost the same. And if you go to locations where there are, there's a relative abundance of primary care physicians and a relative reduction in specialists, what you see is that primary care physicians give uh, higher quality care than when there's a supply, full supply of specialists. And he calls that the paradox of uh, of primary care and he makes the case that maybe the data there, there are two explanations he says one is that maybe the data is flawed but the other is he says maybe we're looking at this on different levels different ways and that we just need to understand how this data all fits together that along the lines of our veterans who have a lot of access to care generally speaking 
that perhaps simply having a lot of access to care of any sort is much better than having general limits to care. So if you don't have enough access to either a primary care physician or uh, a specialist, then, then that access makes the difference. And I was intrigued by that. So I, I looked a little further and there's an article from 2001. I don't know if this has changed. I was looking for updates from this. Uh, Dr. Gregory Simmons said that um, if you actually look at a specialty care clinic where they took data from, they had, I think it was about 600 patients and they looked at functional outcomes. They looked at quality measures. They found that the psychiatrists were a little bit more likely to have quality measures met. So 60% uh, of the time psychiatrists were having their, the frequency of the visit be within the standard of care um, compared to about 25% with the primary care physicians. But if you actually look at effective dosing um, at 90 days, there's almost no difference between a primary care physician and a psychiatrist at being in an adequate dose of a medication, which I think is absolutely stunning, right? Maybe there are a lot of caveats to this, but, but at least a glance at primary care versus psychiatrist in at least this clinic, which may not apply to all other clinics, suggests that um, maybe, maybe just there's not a lot of difference. And I'm kind of hurt by that. <laughs> As a psychiatrist? As a psychiatrist, I'm kind of hurt by that. And I'm thinking that um, on some level, there's room for improvement for everybody, and maybe if everybody is a little bit better getting at an adequate dose of a medication and checking the follow-up and those kinds of things, perhaps we have better outcomes for our patients, right? Um, but there's something missing here, and there's something um, off with the story, right? Now, there were a couple of other things that came out of this uh, study. One of them was that the population that was going to the psychiatrist were already um, not functioning quite as well. Yeah. They were self-referred, so they were slightly sicker. They were more likely to be men than uh, the population that was not self-referred and that stayed with the primary care physicians. But the other thing that was kind of interesting is the group that was with the primary care physicians that stuck with them were also more likely to participate in the study than the group that went with the psychiatrist. So you'd think that somebody that felt comfortable enough to refer themselves to a psychiatrist might not be afraid of participating in the study, but I think stigma may work stigma something. Stigma of seeing yeah. a psychiatrist means... I'm not going to talk about yeah. it, maybe. And that might be a factor in some of the other things we see as well. You talked about that being a barrier to, to referral. Mm -hmm. In any case, I think the, the point I took away from this was that the way that uh, Dr. Strange talked about this, and that, that sounds kind of unusual to refer that in a, in a world of a Marvel universe, right? Um, the way that Dr. Strange referred to this is that the issue of referral might be a little simpler than all of the factors we talked about. It might get back to the issue of does the mental illness predominate the picture or not? So perhaps with a primary care physician, the complexity of the socioeconomic status, the family dynamics, and all of those things that a, that a family practitioner may have a better view of, um, uh, comorbid illnesses and so forth, that may uh, keep us in one location, whereas it, when the illness becomes the dominating factor, then that might be the reason why we move um, to a specialist. And I, I think an example of that is here at the State Hospital. In a sense, we are the, uh, the specialists for schizophrenia, and we've taken that, quite often that comes out of the hands of the generalists, um, the general psychiatrists, and then it comes to the State Hospital to a specialist, to somebody that works with that 
uh, specific illness all the time, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I thought it was a, an interesting study, and it's certainly something to focus on. The other takeaway I took from this was that as medical students, I have a number of primary care physicians that, medical students that intend on becoming primary care physicians. And I think my take home was there are certain measures that you can check, right? What are the quality measures that are being looked at? Is it the number of visits that are required for follow-up? Is it an effective dose of an antidepressant? Is it checking for suicidality and making sure there's not emergence of suicidality? Mm -hmm. Essentially, you can be the expert in some areas. I think it's hard to be the expert in every area, but I think it might be easier to be the expert than we think, right? If we're tackling depression and anxiety, um, which are very, very common, and we're, we're tracking three or four measures as primary care physicians that are important um, step goals to make sure that your patient is getting an adequate treatment, then I, th I think maybe you're competing with specialists who treat chronic illnesses. I don't know if that makes sense. I wonder what your thoughts are about that, Garrett. I see the fear in your I'm, eyes. You're I'm, like, I'm, I don't want to like, do that. I'm like thinking, how do I parse all of this? And like, well, to go back just a little bit, I had a question about this study. And was mm -hmm. it specific to just depression or anxiety? Or was it just all of their patients? So... So multi or medical outcome study was across the board specialty versus um, okay. primary care, and I and I believe it was with regards to chronic illnesses, right? But then the study, uh, the Simmons study in JAMA 2001, um, and I think this was the psychiatry uh, JAMA. There's uh, specific uh, JAMA uh, magazines for different conditions or different uh, specialties. And so the 2001 article actually looked at, uh, I want to say depression and anxiety only using a skid um, to be able to identify that condition. So. Okay. Well, based on this discussion that you just brought forward, it would make me feel like the biggest factor in the health of these patients is just the time and focus that you can put into it. Like sounds like as long as there is a physician who genuinely cares and is taking the time to do all the things that we have learned is the appropriate management of care, there's going to be good outcome, or at least the same average outcome as if I had referred to a specialist. In many cases, it looks like the specialists are dropping the ball, I think is a fair way of saying that. So if you as a primary care physician are looking at these outcome measures of adequate dosing, adequate trial of a medication, frequency of visits, and so forth, then, then I think you're doing much like what a primary care physician would do, but it then becomes how comfortable are you with that. My sense is that over time, uh, physicians who work closely with other specialists um, become somewhat more comfortable with how they prescribe and do things, right? So, mm -hmm. so it may be that earlier in your career as well, you might be more interested in referring somebody out that you feel like you don't know how to manage and you don't mm -hmm. know how to read how to manage them. You don't, you know how to read how to manage them, but you don't know where to start with that. I don't how know you where my resources that. are and new in the area. Right. It's like, I, I'm not quite ready for this yet, but yeah. as the years go by, grew more knowledge and more ability, like you said, to find the knowledge, which I think is a big part for medicine in general mm -hmm. these days, is the ability, knowing where to find the answer, uh, hopefully improve enough that referrals not as often as a thing, and when it is, it's for 
really good reason. Yeah, I think the other thing maybe that I took out of this is how functional is your patient, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes we think about uh, a, a lot of what we do is focused on SIGI caps, right? Do you, how, are you still feeling depressed? Oh, yeah, it's not too bad. How's your sleep? Well, I sleep about eight and a half hours most nights. How's your energy? Yeah, you know, it's a lot better than it was when I was depressed. It's not 100%. Oh, it sounds like you might have a, a partial recovery on your hands. Mm -hmm. But there might be a difference in functional recovery. Hey, have you made it back to work? Nah, Doc, man, I just don't feel like going back to work. I have the energy for it. Well, that's a whole lot different than what sounds like a partial recovery in the in, mm -hmm. in the Siggy Cap stuff, right? So, so um, an attention to the functional recovery, in addition to those quality markers, might produce the best of both worlds. And and I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is, there's something missing here because our our specialists in chronic care and at least some conditions don't seem to be you know solving the problem, and that's not a referral from a primary care to a specialist care. That's a, that's self-referral versus, versus standard of care for primary care physicians that where, where at least in those early uh, months, that care is not separating from primary care. So, I don't know. All right, uh, curious what, uh, we've got three brand new to psychiatry medical students here today and they kind of look a little bit like um, there's a phrase used in Utah called deer in the headlights. And I'm curious what you guys' thoughts are about this so far. Well, I think it's just interesting to hear that, I don't know, their psychiatry is just a big part of the family med practice. And it can be kind of what you make of it and what effort you put into it of how well you can take care of these patients. So. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think the data at least is supportive of the direction you're going with that statement, yeah. Rebecca, thoughts? Um, I think something interesting is I, ha I did have a family med rotation in a rural area where they didn't have very many specialists and they basically did everything. They were their patients ob and they were their psychiatrist unless they got to that they had to refer and they, they did a little bit of everything and I think that in that community they were well taken care of still like you were saying that just because you don't refer them out to a specialist that they're not getting good enough care. And I think if you put enough effort into it, like Cody was saying, that you can still provide them good enough care for, for their needs and take good care of them. I, I think um, one of the things that fascinates me among the most, uh, among the most fascinating things to me, is probably the greatest thing that ever happened to, uh, in the treatment of depression might be that family practice physicians felt comfortable prescribing Prozac. Really hard to kill yourself with Prozac, really easy to kill yourself with tricyclic antidepressants, right? And you guys remember that? Not yet, but you will remember it in a week because you'll see that and you might even look at the podcast on treatment of atypical depression and the podcast that we did with, uh, uh, you said their names, Natalie and- Natalie uh, and Brandon. Brandon, yeah, yeah, so. They covered a few different subjects like MAOIs and TCA step treatment. They went over. Yeah. There's a lot of really good stuff. I liked it. I felt like if a primary care physician were tackling care the way that was described by the two of them, that they would be doing a very good job for their patients and that a patient that didn't get well um, at least had the basic stuff done before they were you mm -hmm. know, recommended to find a, family, a psychiatrist for additional you know, ideas. 
And there are some things that you can't do as easily in primary care. I think a psychiatrist is probably going to be a little bit more likely to get a ketamine uh, clinic where they can have the ketamine locked up in their in a safe and be able to prescribe that and have the appropriate uh, licensure for that or appropriate steps taken to do that. And I think family practice docs might be a little bit less likely to do that. So there are things that, uh, treatments that aren't available to just everybody, I think. Uh, Chris, you, you haven't chimed in yet. Um, Speaking of deer in the headlights. <laughs> yeah, one, one like thought I have, to, like it's kind of like puzzling to me that the uh, specialists like don't have like as great of functional outcomes as the primary care providers like maybe one analogy to that is is like the NP or PAs in primary care versus like a MD or DO a physician like they can kind of still do the same thing but in I don't know what the data is on that if if like a family nurse practitioner has the same outcomes as like a, a um, like a physician working primary care but it might be kind of a similar analogy so what you're saying is I need to watch out because not only will primary care physicians make my uh, level of care irrelevant, but maybe uh, nurse practitioners, uh, PAs, uh, physician assistant, and so forth. Huh? I, what? I, I, I had a thought uh, just to expound on, I think, what you're trying to say is that the vast majority of the time, like 95% of the time, you can handle a person's treatment with a basic understanding. Only a fraction of the time does that additional knowledge come into play. Like what you were saying between like NPs and physicians, yes, the vast majority of the time they have a similar functional outcome, but it's those few times that you needed that additional education that is sort of play. Is sort of like what of? I think that's yeah, yeah that's what I understood. Do we have data on that? Because I'm the data guy, right? I want to know, know if right. that's because because you hear that, but huh? Is there a study on that? Because uh, again. Um, one of the things that we've tried very hard to do in this podcast series is have the best data possible. Uh, and I think as a summary, there's not great data on when we should and shouldn't refer. Mm -hmm. The data on the benefit of referral to, uh, the, the, benefit, uh, the data about benefit of referral to a specialist doesn't look great, right? It doesn't look great, but the studies are difficult to do as well. Um, and the quality of care that any patient gets is very dependent on the provider itself, I think. And, and maybe the way we tackle this uh, and the thing that makes the most sense is um, there probably are a few things that are really helpful having a psychiatrist involved. Suicidality, bipolar disorder, and psychosis. There are some specialty conditions that even a lot of psychiatry clinics don't always tackle, such as anorexia. right? And uh, mm -hmm. So you might see conditions where you just say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm not trained to tackle this at all. This is yours. Or, in the case of schizophrenia, I'll manage the metabolic side effects of the antipsychotic medications if you'll just help keep them treated and we'll tackle this together, right? So, so I think there's a lot of take-homes from the information we have and a lot of data that's missing, a lot of outcome data that we still need to, to look to have a better sense of. What say you? I, I would agree wholeheartedly. I wish there was a ethical way to do a blind study of sending patients to primary care versus the specialty of choice, but that sounds like a difficult thing to set up. But I think you have a, we have a good idea of where we need more data.
Okay. So normally what we do at this point is we give everybody a chance to give a high yield fact that is a principle that's tested on the shelf exam. And I don't think you guys have had the chance to really start looking at shelf questions yet to be able to jump in with that. We needed to do this today because we're trying to do one weekly, uh, one weekly with, um, uh, sorry, I got a phone call coming in there that I had to quiet. We were trying to do one of these weekly with Garrett and our other fourth year students. So um, I needed to do that this afternoon and it wasn't quite as totally fair to you guys because I don't think you guys have quite the sense of where we're going with this. Hopefully you see the vision for the next one and the next one will be probably next Monday or Tuesday. And Garrett, any ideas what we'll be talking about at that time? Is it the generalized anxiety disorder? I think that was something we seemed very interested in discussing. Not a lot that we have on anxiety. I think there's one podcast on generalized anxiety disorder. Okay, there's, was there already one is on there, that? There might uh, not be. I think you said there aren't any podcasts on that. So I'll, I think so. All right, so probably something about generalized anxiety disorder, recognition, diagnosis, treatment, mm -hmm. um, and we'll have some assignments for you guys at that point as well, okay? On that note, guys, uh, something that you may also not know is at the end of a podcast, we all say team out. So thanks very much for uh, the podcast. Thanks for a very interesting question. Led me down some pathways that I was um, not expecting to see and, and very much enjoyed. So, Garrett, let's see where it takes us next week. Sounds and good. team out. Team out. Team out.